Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's conversation, we'll discuss what to expect from next week's fall economic statement from the Trudeau government, as well as renewed hope that we may get through this experience with inflation without provoking a major recession, and, if time permits, the policy fallout from the Trudeau government's recent changes to the federal carbon tax. Amanda, we have a lot to cover. Thank you so much for joining me again. Great to be here. We're speaking on November 16th, a handful of days before the fall economic statement. The Hub published an article today by University of Calgary economist and regular Hub contributor Trevor Toome on the numbers to contextualize the, the fiscal update. And I'd encourage everyone to check it out. There's some pretty striking data in there. One of the most notable for me, Amanda, is that the government's deficit may be revised upwards from $40 billion in March to as high as $56 billion next week. A deficit of this magnitude would represent, on a cyclically adjusted basis, the largest as a share of the economy since 1995. Are we moving in the wrong direction here? What do you think is going on? I mean, I think that everybody can see. I mean, and and Trevor does a great job of just laying out the data. Um, go read it, to, analyze it as you will. I would challenge anybody to analyze it anyway, except that we're moving in the wrong direction. Uh, you know, some of the points he makes. Uh, this is the fastest increase in interest payment in the rate of interest payments in recorded history. I love that he says recorded history, like maybe in prehistoric times it was faster. Uh, but in history, we've never seen a, a bigger run up. We know uh, households can tell you that mortgage rates have also shot up. Um, he makes the, the really good context point that, you know, compared to the horrible 90s that a lot of people listening won't even remember, uh, it's not as bad as it was then in terms of a share of the economy. Um, but the, the thing that he leaves you with, and I must say, this is my takeaway as we head into this fiscal statement, Sean. This is a government that spends more every single time they offer a budget or a mini budget. Uh, and at some point, you got to actually show uh, people that are worried about this that you are watching the fiscal balance um, in some way. There has to be a path to zero or you're just signaling not just to us, but to the world that, you know, uh, anchors are gone and, uh, you know, you don't care. And that does actually start to rattle confidence, I would think, as you start to see those interest payments climb. Yeah, I seized on the data points about debt interest payments. And as you say, that in August represented the largest on a monthly basis since at least 1995 and probably ever. And it got me thinking some, about something, Amanda. Have we become too nonchalant about deficits and debt in this country? And if so, what's the role of voters? Are we getting the fiscal policy that we collectively want in a way? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important question because, again, it was hard to get back to balance. It happened in the 90s really because it had to. 
we were right. We were at a place where uh, it was just a, it was not sustainable. Well, let me tell you, voters should care that 11 cents of every dollar we send to Ottawa is being burned. Because that's what, you know, interest payments is just, you don't get anything for that. You've already spent that money. It's just being frittered out the window. That's a lot, but it's only going to grow uh, if we continue to amass debt, which is what you do when you run a deficit. And the this is another point Trevor makes that I think is really important. The assumptions this government is living with is that interest rates settle in around 3% for the next 10 years. Are they going to? Well, let me tell you, most Canadian households are starting to wrap their heads around 4% of an overnight rate, 4.5%, because we have to. That might be the new reality. So, you know, when's the last time the Canadian economy grew at 3% in a sustainable, non-post-crisis way? In other words, we can juice the economy with tons of government stimulus and we can get some kind of, you know, growth rate on the other side. But our average growth rate, wow, 2.5% is a good year. So just put those two numbers side by side. And if you've got Debt payments that are more expensive than your income. Everybody in you know anybody anybody who graduated grade nine math can tell you that does not work for very long. That's a, that's a hard situation to be in. Yeah, I, I would say two things in response. The first is your point about spending pressures. You know, the parliamentary budget office produced some analysis in the context of the upcoming fall economic statement that said if you assume no major large spending on the horizon, then our fiscal trajectory is broadly sustainable. And it reminds me of that story, Amanda, of the economist that falls into the hole and says, well, I'll just assume a ladder to get out. We've talked in previous episodes about a number of spending pressures that faces federal government, including but not limited to national defense, climate policy, which we can get into later in the conversation, you know, just the inherent pressures of aging demographics. And so, you know, it seems to me that the risk here is on the downside in terms of the role that spending will play in pushing our public finances in a, in a deteriorating direction. And so that only reinforces the need for the kind of discipline you're talking about. The second thing I would just say, something I mentioned on a, another podcast yesterday, it kind of increasingly feels, Amanda, like we need to reckon with the amount of revenue that we're bringing in on one hand and the expenditure demands that we have on the government. On the other hand, it sort of comes back to my observation about the role of voters. If you think about it this way, we're living in a world of Stephen Harper's tax rates and Justin Trudeau's spending preferences. And it seems to me that there's something kind of incompatible about that. Federal revenue is a share of GDP because of uh, tax cuts enacted during the Harper era is about 13% or so. Spending of, of GDP, that is, spending is consistently around 15 or so percent of GDP. And so I think at some point, something has to give. We have to bring those two numbers into closer alignment, either by having a difficult conversation about tax increases or resetting our expectations when it comes to the size and scope of the federal government. What's your kind of reaction or does that resonate with you? It does. And I, uh, one thing I like the most about that, Sean, is it's important to keep um, long memories on these things. It's really easy to dwell in the here and now. And politicians, of course, live there most of the time. Uh, but yeah, Stephen Harper and a very popular move created a, what like we can argue about exactly what it is, but let's say it's somewhere between 40 and $50 billion structural re reduction in government revenues uh, with the GST reduction. And I asked Jim Flaherty not long before he died when he was changing his mind about things, including income splitting. I said, come on, Jim, what about that GST reduction? Every economist thinks that the consumption tax is good and we should probably raise it. Don't you think? 
And he said, you know what, Amanda, every day I'm happy to keep money in people's pockets. And I like that one and I'm sticking with it. And the thing about that is it is pretty hard to reverse. So the government that wants to come in and say to pay for the many, many things we have to pay for, a consumption tax is the best way to go. They're still right. They'll be right forever. It's hard politically. Uh, so then I would layer on, Sean, yeah, we've got rising healthcare costs. We've got a housing crisis. We still have an affordability issue. Well, what, of course, uh, about uh, all of the other things that could come our way, including pharmacare, which is a very political issue. We may see a reference to it next week. It's a promise made to the NDP, which is helping prop up this government. Uh, and, you know, and I told this is a completely political front, but I would put it back to you to say, if you are sort of thinking about the right path forward and you're the liberal government, there's, I can make a case that letting the government fall over pharmacare, letting Poiliev have a run at a minority government up until the next election is not the worst idea. If you're Justin Trudeau and you actually want to try to win the next election, but that's a whole other conversation, best left probably to, to political minds. Uh, the pharmacare thing's a big question. It's expensive. Are we going to see a crack at that right now? I don't know. I hope not because we can't really afford it. Yeah, I was on, uh, I mentioned this other podcast yesterday with some center left or, or progressive uh, policy wonks with some proximity to the government. And their sense was the government would have to nod in some way to Pharmacare if it wants to continue to, to secure the support of the New Democrats. But for fiscal reasons and for, for other reasons, uh, we probably won't see serious movement on a, a single, a single payer Pharmacare model, which it would not only be significant in terms of fiscal pressure, which kind of comes back to the conversation we're having. But it's also worth keeping in mind, Amanda, that something like 80% or so of Canadians are satisfied with their health and dental coverage, you know, either in the form of employer provided insurance, or if you're poor, old, um, or a student um, through through public systems. And so, you know, disrupting the apple cart for, you know, 80% of the population in order to solve for a relatively small share of the population that um, that is poorly served by the status quo strikes me as a, a difficult equation uh, for a government that already finds itself in a, a pretty difficult uh, political situation. But I, I want to ask, Amanda, we've been talking about the potential that we've become too complacent over the years. We've told ourselves too nice a story about Canada's performance when it comes to public finances, especially relative to others around the world. What's your sense on Bay Street? Is it starting to grow more concern about Ottawa's rising deficits and debt and the overall direction of its fiscal policy? So it's an interesting question because, of course, this stuff does matter. Um, I don't I've never really had the impression. Um, it, and I mean, ever, except maybe back in the, you know, boys in red suspender days of the 1990s, that uh, that that the business community really cares much, um, except where it where it speaks to sort of Canada's competitiveness, um, the reputation aspect of it. Uh, you know, I, the business community, I, in my in my experience, is much more reactive to sudden changes in policy, uncertainty, um, you know, a sense of kind of some looming uh, problem and nobody knows how it's going to be resolved. So it, on that, I would put the the green transition now, unfortunately, in that category where you create uncertainty and then that leaves people saying, well, where am I supposed to invest? We have a real, you know, Philip Cross has been doing some great work on this. We have a real puzzle in this country of why business investment is lagging, not just post COVID, but since 2015 lagging. Um, and we know that, you know, it's funny that it's, it's, it's actually worth doing the math on a very small difference in GDP growth 
one year, but writ over time, yields a massive change in per person um, income and wealth. So your per capita GDP. Uh, so, you know, we can say, oh, what's the difference between 2% and 2.5%? Well, it's a material difference 10 years down the road to the household wealth. Uh, and so we do need to solve for things like that. And I think consistency in policy, you know, clarity around what's ahead is most important to the business community. And, you know, if they can see a way, they also financed at low rates for a long time and are now having a bit of a reckoning to some of them. So I think everybody understands that piece of the equation. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. That is such a tremendous insight. I want to move on to another subject in a second, but just to emphasize the point that Bay Street is less hawkish on fiscal policy than some people might think. I'm speaking, obviously, in general terms, and much more concerned, as you say, about regulatory policy, about taxes, trade, and, and so on. I remember in the 2015 election campaign, I, I was involved as a volunteer for the Conservative Party when Justin Trudeau, then opposition leader, committed to running deficits for three years, which, of course, isn't how it's quite materialized. But in any case, that was his promise at the time. And Stephen Harper had me speaking to senior officials, senior folks at banks and elsewhere, in effect, to try to encourage them to raise concerns about the liberal plan to go into deficit. And I could not get anyone agitated or motivated, you know, by that. And so, yeah, it's not to say that they are that Bay Street is irresponsible or supports irresponsible fiscal policy. But as you say, I think in terms of the list of priorities, it may be lower. And in that vein, I would just in parentheses, encourage listeners and viewers to check out an article we wrote this week about uh, the increasing kind of wallop by the federal government on the banks in the form of various taxes, which I think is motivating a lot bank, banks a lot more than the deficit these days. I want to turn to inflation because it's it's not all bad news. One gets a sense that we may actually pull this off, which is to say the inflation rate seems to be heading in the right direction without a recession or at least a significant one. What's your sense, Amanda? Even if it's too early to declare victory, is there reason for optimism here? So, I, I mean, my observation on this is less about what uh, whether I think there is or there isn't, but that there is there seems to be a real concerted effort to have consensus that there is. In other words, all of a sudden, market participants want the narrative to be, and this is especially true in the U.S. It's slightly less so here, but we were so influenced by that U.S. market and the narrative. I mean, literally this week, we got U.S. inflation data. And all of a sudden, the narrative is, whew, we dodged the bullet. Inflation is solved. There's no recession. Buy commodities. You know, the markets are roaring. And I, it just makes me, the journalist in me, sit back and say, really? Because there's still a ways to go here. And there's still some shoes to drop. And then I would say, even if that's true for the U.S., maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I think we got to let it play out for a few months to know. Uh, we are in a very different situation here, not least because we've allowed housing to become the largest sector in our economy. This completely useless sector that uh, provides no gain after uh, you know the initial investment is made, no enduring benefit to anybody. 
uh, is now the largest sector we have. So we've got a whole other problem here. We've got poor business investment. Uh, yes, inflation is coming down, but we have also just do the math on the wage gains we've seen, and we've built in some pretty solid price gains for the next couple of years as companies feed that through to consumers. So I think I, the thing I found most interesting about this narrative, Sean, is that all of a sudden people are ringing the victory bell. Um, and the skeptic in me is saying, I think we want to pause on that. I'm not sure. But stock markets will tell you Whew, it's all over. And stock markets are forward looking and maybe they're right. But I'm uh, I'm skeptical. Another thing that people are increasingly talking about is revisiting our inflation target rates. What are you hearing about that? And, and what's your reaction? Well, so I actually, um, I've been on this bandwagon because there's a lot of uh, structural inflation, right? We've talked about this. Um, green transition is structurally inflationary. Demographics is structurally inflationary. There's a lot of things that say maybe 2% to the 2% to 3% range is too arbitrary. And we could say 4 is fine. As we all know, all that matters is that it's a stable place. It could be 10. As long as you know it's 10 every year, people can plan accordingly and it'll be uh, it'll be fine for the economy. I mean, maybe not 10, but you're with me. Consistency is what matters in this number. And so I've actually been doing a digging on this. Um, no central bank will right now say they're going to change the target because they have to promise that they're sticking to this particular target. As soon as they get close to it, they might change it, but they have to stay where they are now. But I was curious to know what, who's talking about it. We've been talking about this for 20 years. There, I mean, honestly, and I've saw some really good, serious, a whole policy wonk conference on the subject of changing the target with this very people I would talk to about it today from, I want to say 2018. So this is not a new discussion. Um, lots of people have thought that this was something that should happen. Uh, and so will it happen? I don't know. On the other side of the ledger, really smart people like Stephen Polas will say, there's some actual uh, deflationary stuff kind of percolating, um, including new technologies. And so maybe this, maybe it all works itself out. But yeah, it's an interesting conversation for sure. For those interested, the five-year agreement between the Department of Finance and the Bank of Canada will come up in 25, 26. And it's not uncommon, Amanda, in the lead up to the expiration of the agreement for the government to start to carry out research or hold consultations or whatever. And so we may start to see as early as next year, beginning signs around, you know, a new consensus. And it's certainly something that we'll be watching at the hub and, and in our regular conversations. Let's wrap up with climate policy because you've alluded to it a couple of times. Today, Angus Reid has a poll that shows Canadians believe that the Conservative Party is the best one on climate change, which is an extraordinary development. It leads me to the question, did the Trudeau government's climb down on the carbon tax, at least as it relates to home heating oil, undermine its credibility on climate change and remove one of its advantages vis-a-vis -vis the Conservatives? I mean, we uh, we now have, of course, a dismantling um, in some form of the central piece of this government's green agenda. So, uh, you know, whatever you think about that, uh, whether you're happy about it or sad about it, I think you you can't really debate that when you actually undermine your own central piece, you've undermined it. And there's, you know, you can say, well, we just chipped away a little bit at the corner. Um, a chip is a chip. And as you can see, you know, there's a bill that's now in the Senate to exempt farmers um, for, for certain types of heating for certain parts of their business. Um, wow, who's going to audit that? I don't know. But what you're doing is saying exemptions can happen, uh, and therefore we don't believe in a carbon tax. And, you know, the thing I take away most from this, Sean, is 
Um, and this is why I, I think when the polls show the liberals have actually lost support on this from all sides, even people that didn't particularly like this carbon tax in the first place, it's because you need to understand yourself why it matters to you. And this kind of leaves a hollow sense that maybe the maybe some somehow this government doesn't understand the carbon tax and they don't care about it. Catherine McKenna had the tweet, I think, that sums it up, right? And the day this happened, she tweeted, the former environment minister tweeted, politics is hard or something. Politics is awful. Or, you know, what the point of she was making was this is a political thing. Um, but I don't know if you would agree. But to me, the day that happened was the nail in the coffin. And it opens the door wide for a, a new government to just kill the whole thing. Otherwise, it would have been hard. I think it would have been politically hard for a Polyev-led government to kill it. Now, no problem, because the liberals started it. Yeah. One of the challenges, it seems to me, Amanda, is that the death of the carpet tax really didn't begin with this announcement. It's been happening over time. You know, when the government's elected in 2015, it's presented as the signature measure by which Canada is going to go about achieving its emissions reductions. And we've seen a whittling away at its relative place in the government's overall climate plan for some time. We've previously talked on this program, for instance, about things like cap on the oil and gas sector, the clean fuel scandal and other measures such that even before the announcement last month, the carbon tax was doing about 25 or 30 percent of the heavy lifting in terms of hitting our 2030 targets. And so in that sense, it was already a kind of declining share of the mix. And I think what this has done is made it even easier, as you say, to discard it. And not just politically, even from a kind of policy point of view, in the sense that a smaller share that it plays, the less costly it is to replace it with some mix of regulations or subsidies. It's a for those who are motivated by the carbon tax as a efficient market driven way to reduce emissions. This is a kind of disappointing outcome. And I, I think that includes you, right? It it does. And, you know, I, I, I'm certainly no expert in the policies around transition. And if you show me another one that, you know, maybe there is a better way forward. It intuitively makes sense to me that when you put a price on something, we can measure its value and we can determine how in what way to use it. Um, and so the hard message for consumers, it was always going to be uh, go ahead and drive your SUV and fill up your car as much as you like. Here's what it's costing, not just you, but the, you know, your neighbors and the world. Uh, and we're now pricing that in. And that this is part of a really choppy, disjointed process that, yes, was going to take time. And yes, we have to engage other nations. And hopefully there becomes a, a global price on carbon and maybe cap and trade one day, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we were just at the beginning of it. But the minute you kind of say, well, but we don't really want you to suffer. So I never liked the rebates um, ever, ever, ever. Did I like that? You know, I paid for the carbon tax at the pump and then the government sent me a check three months later. Um, that didn't make sense to me. I understand the kind of the reality of that. But I do think it's the best, most efficient way to get us to understand that our actions have ramifications and costs and we're trying to measure them. Um, is there a better way? Maybe doing nothing doesn't seem like the right approach if we're interested in, in making strides on this file. Um, so I don't know, maybe somebody will have a good idea, but I hope they're, I hope they're, they hope they hurry up. You've been generous with your time, so I won't keep you much longer, but I would just say, you mentioned Catherine McKenna, who of course was the first environment minister for the Trudeau government and someone deeply committed to the goal of mitigating climate change. And I would say this respectfully, it's not a personal criticism, but in hindsight, I think there was a strategic mistake on the part of the government, and that would include her, Amanda, is that their message early on was that the environment and the economy go hand in hand, which is a nice thought, of course. But it would seem to me what it did was sought to diminish some of the trade-offs you're talking about. 
And so as those trade-offs started to manifest themselves in people's consumer behavior, they thought, what the heck? You know, nobody told us about this. And, and so I think, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. What we need isn't a conversation that minimizes those trade-offs. It's one that's forthright about them. And we have a kind of a, a dispassionate conversation about the costs and consequences of climate change on one hand and the kind of short-term and long-term benefits and costs of taking action now. I, I think that's probably the best means to secure the public support necessary to make greater progress. I think that's right. And I think, you know, you've been close to um, this kind of decision making. The the trouble, of course, is that uh, politics can be terribly short term in its thinking, um, you know, and, and it's required. It's funny, you know, if, if you ask me, you know, what's a silver bullet to fix America? I would say campaign finance reform. If there's a silver bullet to fix Canada, it would be somehow to get politicians to think in 10 year terms. Uh, instead of, uh, you know, the, the election cycle or even this week, it seems even shorter than the election cycle sometimes. Thinking long term, the kind of thinking that builds railroads and healthcare systems uh, is what we need right now. Um, and that seems to be lacking. And I know there's a reality around that, but boy, I wish we had more of it. Well, that long term thinking is precisely why I like talking to you every couple of weeks. Amanda Lang, I want to thank you for joining me and I look forward to catching up soon. Great to talk, Sean. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.